Well, good afternoon and welcome back to our midweek edition of our podcast, Memorial Baptist Church Family and Friends, uh, for this April 29th, 2020. God is awesome and so amazing. I'm very thankful for Almighty God who blesses us with His presence in these days of uncertainty. As we continue to weather this crisis, our church is choosing to view it not as an obstacle, but as an opportunity. I'm reading through Philippians right now, and Memorial and our church staff does not want to waste these circumstances that we're in, just like the Apostle Paul didn't waste his circumstances as a prisoner in Rome. Those circumstances served to further the gospel, and we know that our circumstances are too. They're serving to further the gospel. I really enjoyed an article written by Meredith Rose about Pastor Mike Miller of Central Baptist Church in Jacksonville. Pastor Mike put it this way. He said, we say practice physical distancing, but not social distancing. Yes, we need to remain distant physically during this time, but that does not mean that we should be distant socially. We're encouraging our staff to be in weekly contact with their ministry leadership. We're trying to maintain a personal touch in the midst of physical distancing. See, we at Memorial desire to foster a social closeness even from a physical distance. One way we are trying to do that is through meeting remotely in our connect groups, deacons meetings, finance meetings, even our church staff through our our Zoom Uh, staff meetings, you know, giving adequate time to connect with others, check on their welfare, and also to conduct whatever business is needed, but especially, especially by praying for one another. We also have a fledgling drive-up prayer ministry emerging. Again, we're valuing engagement with people over what I want to say is just viewership, We're striving to increase our engagement with people, having discussions and dialogues over passive viewership and non-personal page likes. If you are tuning into our NBC YouTube channel on Sunday mornings, comment if you are able to let us know that you are there. We want to foster social closeness and engagement with people during our physical distancing. Our memorial staff is working hard to maintain social closeness during these times. We're also discussing our plan once we are able to safely meet again corporately and what that might look like. I just want to say thank you, church family, um, for all your patience and understanding. Thank you so much for your tremendous faithfulness in giving and continuing to support your church and the kingdom work that we are all involved in. Thank you all for your support. These are difficult times for everyone. I would also like to thank Joel Shumate and Melinda Greger and Lori Deaver for working with our bank and helping us keep Memorial on solid footing financially. Each of you has done an excellent job in caring for the needs of our church and the church staff. Could we pause uh, for just a moment and pray and give God thanks for all that He is doing in our world? I'm going to ask if you would pray with me as I pray.
Almighty and everlasting Father, we thank you for all that you are doing for us. We thank you for these, uh, your special presence with us during this season. We thank you, Father, that, that we don't have to worry, that, that you are the one in control. And Father, you know the things that are going to happen and, and that are going to come to pass. And so we can trust you, Father. You have been faithful to us in all things. Uh, Father, we're thankful for the Lord Jesus who gave his life uh, so that we might have eternal life, so that we might be able to access your throne room. Father, that we stand before you um, covered in his blood, uh, so that, Father, when you look at us, you, you see your son and his sacrifice. What a blessing that is, Father, that you don't look at us as, as, as sinners, but you look at us as saints, saved and redeemed for all eternity. We're thankful, Father, for the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who, who is our teacher, our guide, and nudges us and, and leads us into all truth. I thank you that um, you sent a comforter to be with us. Father, I just want to lift up those in our, our, of our homebound members that are, that are struggling right now. Some of them are grieving. Uh, some of their families are grieving. Father, some of them are struggling with loneliness. Uh, some of them are struggling with health issues. Some of them are, are struggling with other issues. But, Father, you know the need in each life. And so I just lift them before you and that, that they would sense your presence with them even now, even in this very moment, Father, that, that they would sense you with them, guiding them, leading them in control. Father, I lift up uh, Dr. Edna and, and Bobby Bridges, I know these are difficult days for them, and I pray that you would bless them and draw them to you. Father, I, I pray that you would just, uh, your grace, your mercy, your comfort would be upon them. Lord, I, I lift up our missionaries around the world. Father, uh, especially those, uh, I know that we've heard from uh, Greg and Jean Hines in Honduras, and, and uh, Father, they're having trouble getting food to their, their village and things, and so they're having to be that uh, food supply line of hauling food back and forth. And so I, I pray, Father, that you would uh, help them as they minister to these people. Father, as they, they show them what it means to, to love like Jesus loves, I pray, Father, that you would provide for their needs. I pray, Father, that you would provide uh, for the, the lost souls, that you would draw them to yourself. I pray, Father, that you would uh, just take care of the food issue, that, that people would have enough to eat and, and be able to, to carry on with life, even during these, these difficult times. Father, I lift up to you the souls of men and women, Father, those lost souls that don't know you, that have never heard. Father, those that, 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 that don't have a relationship with you through your son Jesus. I lift them up, Father, and I pray that you would bring about a, a great awakening all across this land. Father, a sweeping revival where thousands of souls are swept into your kingdom. Father, we recognize that You've done it before, and what you've done before, you could certainly do again. And so I ask, Lord, do it again. Bring a great revival. Send a great revival. Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for seeing us through. 
We thank you for the encouragement that you give us. I pray, Father, that you would just continue to show yourself mighty in the lives of your people, in the lives of your church. Father, that as we move forward in your kingdom, Father, that you would guide us and lead us, that you would fill us, that you would use us. Father, we're going to be very careful to give you the praise and the glory and the honor for everything that you do. And it's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. Now, today we're going to switch gears here and and, uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last week uh, in the Holy Bible, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verses 12 through 19. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 19. I would like to review just a bit from the last two weeks. You know, the author of Hebrews tells us to consider Jesus, meaning look intently at Jesus. He's our apostle. He's he's the one sent. He's our high priest. He is worthy of more honor and glory than Moses. Moses was faithful as a servant, but Jesus is the heir. He's the one who will inherit all things, and he is God. And last week we talked about avoiding Uh, In order to avoid the hardness of heart, we must submit to God's authority through His inspired Word. We must make sure that our hearts are in proper relationship to God. We must recognize and submit to God's ways. And when we submit to God's ways and His Word, we enter into His rest. We're going to be talking about His rest uh, quite a bit the next couple of weeks. Um, Now when we get to Hebrews 3, there's a, there's a great deal of Old Testament history and biblical knowledge is assumed by the author of this text. For example, the term, quote, rest, unquote, occurs ten times in chapters 3 and 4 and nowhere else in the book. Which is most important for us to understand Uh, What is most important for us to understand is that there are several different kinds of rest to which the author refers. We must understand each of these and the differences between them to grasp the message of this portion of Scripture. But I want to give you an overview of, of our lesson today. You see, the author is going to use the second half of Psalm 95 as the basis for his exhortation in chapters 3 and 4. But there are several Old Testament texts which serve as the backdrop for the psalmist's argument in Psalm 95. So we, we, we must be have knowledge of the Old Testament if we're going to figure out what he's saying through the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews. I'd like to share a couple of texts with you which describe uh, several incidents which have to do with Israel's exodus from Egypt and their journey toward the promised land. Specifically, the psalmist in Psalm 95 bases his exhortation on Israel's failures at Meribah and Massah. Now, these, these texts that I'm talking about are Exodus chapter 17 Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, out of the book of Numbers. It's Numbers chapter 13 and 14. 
Numbers 13 and 14, and then Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 13. Numbers 20, 1 through 13. Now, I want to encourage you to please look these up and read them. It will provide a valuable backstory for what we read in Psalm 95. But also our text this evening in Hebrews 3, and then moving forward into Hebrews chapter 4 as well. See, these were dark times in the wilderness, and the psalmist used them in Psalm 95. So as we go, we will see how this exhortation also applies to the church. I want to say to our church today. So considering the context, where we are in Hebrews, okay? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 and 13 says this. It says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now notice how the author of Hebrews does not seem to feel obligated to engage in an exposition here, but rather he moves immediately into exhortation. I believe that the author of Hebrews accepts the argument of the psalmist and his conclusions. All he needs to is to press for the same application on the part of his readers hundreds of years later. Take note of the corporate dimensions of this text. I think that the New American Standard Version renders it in a way that accurately represents the emphasis of the author as I understand him. I mean, to paraphrase the author, I believe he's saying something like this. Be very careful, my brothers, that no one in your congregation has such an evil, unbelieving heart that they would turn away from their faith in the living God. This is completely consistent with what follows next. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The spiritual health and well-being of every member of the church is a responsibility of every member of the church, and not just one of its staff who's paid to do so. We are a body, and we are to care for one another. This is not only the emphasis here, but elsewhere in the book as well. We are to see that no one in the body becomes hardened by sin's deception. I mean, what does it mean to be hardened by sin's deception? You know, I've observed this in fairly dramatic terms a number of times in my years of ministry. You know, a Christian husband becomes romantically attracted to another woman, and this leads to an affair. When confronted, he acknowledges that what he has done is sin. He admits that he should break it off for the relationship immediately and seek the restoration of his marriage. 
and yet the fleshly attraction of the illicit relationship is something he does not want to give up. So as sin continues, the wayward heart becomes harder and harder and more and more deceived by sin. Well, the sinner reasons, there are other interpretations of those texts in the Bible. After all, God wants me to be happy. You know, as the sin and deception continues, the sinner eventually comes to reason it this way. He says, well, that's just your interpretation of what the Bible says. I believe God wants me to be happy, so I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. See, I've personally seen this lead to another statement as well. A statement that says, I don't believe any of that gospel stuff anyway. Folks, that is the deceitfulness of sin that hardens hearts to the place where disobedience seems so logical, even compelling. See, this deceit and hardening of the heart takes place over a period of time. It's a slow fade. And it's our duty as members of the body of Christ to be alert to this hardening in our own lives, but also in the lives of others. See, because sin is so deceitful, and because hardened hearts don't see things clearly, we need to take responsibility for others. What the sinner cannot see, we should see and seek to correct. See, the author speaks of falling away the falling away from the living God. And it's an expression referring to apostasy. I mean, how do we explain the fact that apostasy can occur within the church? First, let me share a couple of words here from the wisdom of Dr. S. Lewis Johnson. He says, when we say a Christian perseveres, we don't say he perseveres in a certain style of life. What the doctrine of perseverance says is that a person who has come to faith in Christ and has believed in Him will never apostatize or fall away or turn away from the faith. In other words, you cannot diagnose apostasy merely on the basis of one's conduct in a moment's time. If that were the case, there are a few times that we might have very well have accused David, King David, of apostasy such as when he took Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, for himself and then killed Uriah. Apostasy is the renunciation of one's faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ for salvation. Apostasy may be accompanied by moral failure, uh, even preceded by it, but apostasy isn't merely committing sin. Apostasy is one's departure from faith in Jesus. See, the Christian is never free to sin in the sense that our sins are already covered by the blood of Christ, and so ongoing sin has no consequences. We're not free to sin. You see, to avoid this terrible sin, we must see how evil unbelief really is. I mean, we can shrug it off as no big deal, yeah, it's some, so they don't believe. It's no big deal. And we won't be on our guard against it then. But if I told you that there was a stray cat out on the loose outside, you'd probably think, well, that's no big deal. You wouldn't even be cautious about encountering it. But if I mentioned that that stray cat was a hungry lion, I guarantee you'd be a bit more careful. 
true believers can fall into the sin of unbelief. I mean, God had promised David that he would sit on the throne of Israel. But David was running for his life from the king, mad king Saul. He was crazy. After years of this, David said to himself, Now, I'm going to perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than to escape to the land of the Philistines. That's found in 1 Samuel 27, 1. Folks, that was not a statement of faith in God's promise. It got David into all sorts of trouble before he finally came to his senses, three chapters later. But the point is, believers are not immune from unbelief. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Be on guard. Be ready. Be on the alert. Take care, brethren. See, the author refers to the deceitfulness of sin. Sin fools us into thinking that it will get us out of our current problems and we will will deliver what we want and that obedience to God will deprive us of what we want. But listen, when, when David went over to the Philistines, Saul stopped pursuing him. The Philistine king gave David his own city. And instead of living cave to cave, David and his wives could settle into a normal way of life. But listen to me. Sin always works that way. It fools us into thinking that we're getting what we want. But then the bills of sin come due. See, our faith in Jesus Christ is a matter of our heart being open and and bare before God. It's easy to put on a good show in front of others so that they think, wow, what a godly man Ridge is. I can sing with a loud voice. I can lift my hands in worship. I can pray with intensity. I can partake in communion. I can even preach sermons with fervency, but it could still all be an outward action. God is a living God who looks on the heart. If you look over in chapter 4, verse 13, it says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. See, the living God knows my every doubt, every sinful thought, I can't fool him, not even for a second. If I want to avoid falling into this terrible sin of unbelief, then I must bring every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. I must confess my doubts as sin and walk in reality before the living God every single day. To persevere in faith, There is a great sin to avoid. It's called unbelief. But understand this, brothers and sisters. Exhortation or encouragement is the responsibility of every Christian. We need to encourage one another because the heart of a Christian has such a tendency to wander away from the things of Christ, like that great hymn, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. 
Take my heart, take it and seal it for thy courts above. Listen, this isn't just something that pastors should do. It is a necessary ministry for every member of the body to practice this encouragement mutually. Sometimes I need to exercise this ministry to someone else. But at other times, I need that person to exercise it toward me. See, this command assumes that you are having personal contact with other believers during the week and that they also know what is going on in your life well enough to offer this ministry to you when you need it. So to exercise this service, you must realize that you are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. If you see your brother or sister being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, and you shrug it off, you're not obeying this command. You are not obeying the Word of God. And you're responsible to help your brother or sister who's struggling with unbelief or sin. You can't just keep your distance. You have to get involved. Let's move on to verse 14. It says, For we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, while it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Here the author says it in a plain and straightforward manner. True Christians are those who hold fast to their faith in the Lord Jesus. They never forsake their faith in Him for salvation. They may stumble, they may fall, but they do not cease to trust in the shed blood of Jesus as the only means of their salvation. And so, those who appear to be drifting away from their faith and devotion to Jesus are urged not to become hard of heart, which leads to rebellion. While the phrase, partakers of Christ, focuses on what God has done for us through His grace by faith, the word if, the if clause, focuses on our responsibility. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. See, Saving faith isn't a one-time action. If it's genuine, we go on believing until the time when we see Jesus face to face. That's what he refers to here as the end. It is our responsibility to hold fast to such faith and assurance. You know, in Philippians, Paul presents the same balance. He says God will complete the good work that he began in us But at the same time, he encourages us, he exhorts us to work out our salvation, recognizing all the while that it is God who is at work in us. In other words, the promises about the certainty of our salvation should never cause us to kick back and assume that we have no responsibility in the process. Those who truly believe in Christ will continue to hold fast to the faith in Him until the end. 
See, if they let go of their faith in him, turn back to the world, and are content to stay there, it indicates that they never really trusted him as Savior at all. True believers may go through times of doubt, sin, difficulty, temptations, but they can't remain there. See, God's discipline will bring them back. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8. It's God's discipline that will bring us back. When the author cites the portion of Psalm 95 that urges his readers to listen as God speaks today, he underscores the fact that the Christian life is a day-by-day experience. We live out our faith a day at a time. And so the critical question for us is this, am I listening to what God has to say to me through Christ today, and and am I obedient to what He tells me? If not, I'm on the path of sin which leads to death. God will not allow me to taste eternal judgment, but He will intercept me at various points and with various forms of discipline. It is simply not worth the price to drift away, and to become hard-hearted. See, sin is like the calluses that form on our skin. If we don't have calluses, our hands are sensitive to any pain. But once calluses form on on our hands, We can do things that previously would have caused pain, and we barely feel it. But notice, our consciences are the same way. The first time we commit a sin, our consciences go, ouch. The second time it hurts, but not as bad. After a while, we can do it without even being aware that we're even sinning. You know, I've read about hardened hitmen who are with the mob that can shoot a man in the face at close range and then go out for lunch to celebrate. See, unbelief hardens our hearts against God's standards of holiness. Moving on, we're going to get into three questions here that the writer asks in verses 16, 17, and 18. So let's read those. It says, For who provoked him, verse 16, For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? I mean, the author here is not looking for information when he asks these three questions, because we're given the answers. By asking and answering these questions, the author is seeking to call attention to the facts of the matter. The first thing is this. Those who heard and rebelled were those who came out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. Moses was the one whom the Jews, including Jewish believers, they revered him. And still, those he led failed. This adds weight 
to the author's earlier emphasis on the superior, excuse me, the superiority of Christ to Moses. And those who had Moses as their leader not only heard what God spoke through Moses, they also saw the attesting miracles that God worked through Moses. Notice, this generation that failed, they had more revelation than any other generation up to that point in history and for many generations to come. They heard and rebelled. Those that heard and rebelled were the ones who came out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. The second question and answer calls attention to the fact that those who, with whom God was angry for 40 years were also those whose bodies were scattered throughout the desert. In other words, just as God kept his promises made through Moses of deliverance for Israel and of judgment upon the Egyptians, he kept those promises. He also kept his word with regard to the consequences Israel must face for their persistent rebellion. Listen, God means what he says, and he says what he means. He keeps his word for blessing and for discipline. The third question, those who failed to enter God's promised rest were those who disobeyed. The Israelites continually rebelled against God's commands. Understand this, disobedience to God's commands is rebellion, and rebellion brings about discipline because he's a good, good father. Look at verse 19 as we kind of put all this together here. Verse 19 says, So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Here's the problem. Unbelief is the root of it all. We've come to the root. It's unbelief. That generation of Israelites did not believe God, even though they saw example after example of how God kept his word through Moses. Again and again, God announced a coming plague, and each came as and when God said. Again and again, God announced that he would remove the plague, and each time it came about just as and when God said. The Israelites complained, They rebelled when they were hungry or thirsty, even though God had promised to meet all their needs. And in the end, the Israelites failed to believe that God would give them the victory over the giants in the land. The root evil behind Israel's failure to enter into God's rest was unbelief. See, it's interesting to me that we're studying a passage in Hebrews that deals with rest. The rest which Israel failed to enter was different from what we normally think of as rest. The exact nature of that rest will be the topic of our next lesson. But failure to enter into God's rest is the result of unbelief. 
It was true for that first generation of Israelites, as well as for those in the days of the psalmist, 95, Psalm 95. And so it is true today. Even in the Old Testament, the issue is not our works, but our faith in God to work. That is what rest is about, resting in faith in Him. It is not the absence of activity or work. It is the absence of trust in our own abilities and strength. You see, our faith, our belief must be in God. Just as that first generation heard God's word proclaimed and witnessed the attesting signs and wonders which accredited that word, it gave validation to that word, So the writer of the book of Hebrews claims that his audience has received God's revelation, not through Moses, but through his son, Jesus. And that revelation was validated by miracles and gifts and signs that God performed through his apostles. So we must believe God's word and obey rather than rebel against him. So what are some takeaways? What are some lessons that we can learn from our text? Let me just suggest a few. First, we have a lesson here in hermeneutics, (laughs) the interpretation of God's Word. See, the author of Psalm 95 found in Israel's wilderness wanderings lessons for those who lived centuries later, lessons in faith. Now, the author of Hebrews, then, he he takes the lessons of Psalm 95 and applies them to his day and time. So the key for us is is to understand Hebrews so that we can grasp its application to our generation. Secondly, we should observe from our text that the encouragement, the exhortations of Psalm 95 and Hebrews are the same and can be summed up in three ways here. First, listen and pay careful attention to God's Word. Listen and pay careful attention to God's Word. Secondly, don't become hard-hearted and disobedient due to unbelief. Don't become hard-hearted and disobedient due to unbelief. Thirdly, the consequence of unbelief is failure to enter into God's rest. The consequence of unbelief is failure to enter into God's rest. Now, when we talk about God's rest, we cannot conclude that failure to enter God's rest is synonymous with failure to get to heaven. We talk about eternal rest, but he's talking about faith here in God, resting in God, our, resting our faith in God. An entire generation, follow this now, An entire generation of Israelites, minus Joshua and Caleb, failed to enter the promised land, failed to enter Canaan. And so they failed to enter God's rest. Among those who failed to enter the land were Moses and Aaron. But we can be confident that they did go to heaven. 
the next generation under Joshua did enter the land, but we would be hard-pressed to say that they were all going to heaven. Surely there were unbelievers among them. And in the psalmist's day, he was still warning about failing to enter God's rest, and yet his generation was in the land. Now we're going to wait until our next lesson to clarify what entering God's rest means. But on a fourth note here, I want to say that it seems that the words of Psalm 95 and those of Hebrews 3 and 4 had a unique application to that first generation of Jews to witness the greater exodus of Jesus in his in the flesh, in his incarnation, his earthly ministry, his death and his resurrection. These words must have given any surviving generation witnesses of the coming of Christ something to think about. Would these words in Hebrews not have been similar to the words of Paul and others as they preached to the Jews in their synagogues? Lastly, I would say this. We are our brother's keeper. Verses 12 and 13 indicate that every believer has some responsibility for the spiritual well-being of his fellow believers. We are to gather together faithfully to encourage one another and to watch for signs of spiritual illness, of spiritually bad health. I fear that many churches are not living up to their responsibilities with respect to caring for one another's spiritual health. I suspect that in many churches, church discipline does not exist. We need to be much more proactive, much more encouraging in our care for one another rather than merely being reactive or trying to exercise discipline. We need to be faithful to gather for worship, exalting God for His greatness, recalling His acts of mercy and salvation. See, that is the kind of fuel which promotes faith. We need to be more aggressive in warning our brothers and sisters as we see spiritual dangers ahead. Brothers and sisters, this is why I believe the gathering of the church each Sunday is so important. It provides us with the opportunity to encourage one another. And this is why we have a meeting where people can speak and lead because we need to be ministering to one another so that we enter into His rest rather than drifting toward rebellion and discipline. May Almighty God give us the grace to do better as we gather as a church. And I want to thank you so much for tuning in. Next week, we'll continue our study of Hebrews chapter 4. 
We're going to be in verses 1 through 13. We'll talk about the word rest and entering into his rest. Until then, I just want to say, stay safe. Stay studied up. Remain in God's word. Stay fed. Stay exercised. And whatever you do, give God the glory that is due his name. God bless you.